0: God, we gather this morning, and uh, Lord, we are not here just to have uh, some sort of intellectual exercise, uh, but God, we want to encounter you, the living God. Lord, that's why we have our Bibles open. That's why we want to hear from you. You have spoken, and it's through your word. And so, God, we place ourselves under your word, under your authority. And God, we open ourselves up. We pray that you'd search us this morning. We pray, Lord, that you'd bring uh, conviction where we need conviction, encouragement where we need encouragement. And God, I pray that you'd work in a powerful way by your spirit, through your word, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. It's been said that we measure what we value and we value what we measure. Uh, For example, uh, for those that value uh, physical strength, uh, one way to uh, measure that is by looking to see how much you bench press, if you value your job performance um, or yeah, in sales, for example, uh, one way to measure that is by looking at how many sales you make in that fiscal year. Uh, some parents, they value their children's growth, how tall that they are. So they'll get one of those large kind of wooden rulers and they'll make markings every few months or every year, depending uh, and seeing how, uh, how much their child is growing, how tall that they are getting. Uh, we measure all kinds of things in life. We measure ingredients when we're cooking. We measure our weight, our speed, our, our distance. We measure time and, and temperature. Measurement uh, pretty much permeates every area of our lives when you really think about. I think it's because what we value, uh, we measure, and what we measure is what we value. Now, if that's true, I wanna ask you the question this morning, do you measure your spiritual growth? Do you measure your spiritual growth? If we measure what we value and we value what we measure, do you measure how much you are growing spiritually? And if so, how do you measure your spiritual growth? There are plenty of ways to measure your spiritual growth, but the the question specifically this morning that I want to wrestle with is, What is the primary metric by which you use in evaluating how you're doing spiritually? The the primary one, the, the top one, the superior metric. I'm sure you get asked this question all the time by believers. The question is, how are you doing spiritually, right? It's a good question to ask. It's a question we should often ask believers in our lives. But how do you answer that question? When you stop and you think about it, where do you go first in determining how you really are doing spiritually? Some people uh, look to their church attendance in answering that question. They think through, well, I've I've been going to church every week, the last few months, I must be doing well spiritually. Other people use how much time that they spend in the word. They they look to their devotions and their consistency uh, in spending time with the Lord. Others uh, use how often they serve or how much they give to the church or how little they sin. And look, all of those are good and they are important metrics, don't get me wrong. But I want to suggest to you this morning that the primary metric for evaluating how you are doing spiritually should and must be love, your love for other people. Now, you might be wondering, well, how in the world do you measure love? Like, like, don't you either love somebody or you don't love somebody? Well, if you're wondering that, maybe you missed uh, last week's sermon where we looked at verses four through seven, at really a detailed description of what love is. Paul gave us that detailed description to be able to evaluate how consistent we are loving and really how deep we are loving others. Just a reminder, that this chapter on love is not a cute, flowery description of love meant to make you feel all warm and fuzzy on the inside. Okay, we talked about that last week. This is a strong rebuke by the Apostle Paul. And he is rebuking the Corinthians because they were looking to just about everything else besides love, to evaluate how they were doing spiritually. They were looking to spiritual gifts. They were looking to accomplishments. They they were looking to uh, their status and and their sacrifice, just about everything else besides love. So Paul is writing this chapter to change the framework by which they evaluated their spiritual condition, their spiritual growth, by trying to help them reprioritize love. And so we get to our verses today in verses 8 through 13, and I think this passage answers a very simple question. It's the question of why. Why should we use love as our primary metric for how we are doing spiritually? Paul answers that question by giving two reasons, and they're very much connected. You can almost look at them as 1A and 1B, and then 2 so we're going to walk through each of those points here this morning starting in verse 8. Here's the first reason why love should be the primary metric is that spiritual gifts are temporary, love is eternal or love is permanent. When you look at the beginning of verse 8, we have a famous description of love. Paul says that love never ends or love never fails. This phrase means that love is never defeated. Love is never brought to the ground. Love never collapses. You get this image of, of a building or a bridge that just absolutely crumbles, it collapses. Paul's saying love never does that relationally with other people. That love does not have a fleeting temporary purpose, but love is eternal, love is permanent, love endures. Now he's not just saying that, just to kind of encourage us, he's doing that because he's contrasting the eternal endurance of love with the temporary role of spiritual gifts, in particular, tongues, prophecy, and the gift of knowledge. Paul says those gifts, unlike love, will pass away. They will come to an end. So Paul explains why love should be our primary metric for determining our spiritual maturity because unlike spiritual gifts, Love must characterize our lives both now and forever. In other words, what will matter most a hundred million years from now is not your ability to speak in tongues. It's not how much you know. It's not your gift of prophecy, but it is your ability to love others. And so if that's true, then we we should prioritize that as the primary pursuit of our growth spiritually. Okay, that's the first reason. The second reason here why we should prioritize love, verses nine and 10, again, this is related, but spiritual gifts are limited. Love is complete. Look at verses nine and 10. He says, for we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Look, as amazing as spiritual gifts are, and they are amazing, as important as spiritual gifts are, and they are important, that's the way that we edify and build one another up. Spiritual gifts are not complete. They were not created that way. In fact, if you view spiritual gifts like a ramp, spiritual gifts do not flow into something new, like a ramp that feeds into a highway. Spiritual gifts are, in a sense, A dead end. They will become functionless. Okay, he says, for we know in part and prophesy in part. He's saying that because no one has the full measure of a particular gift. You have the gift of wisdom or, or prophecy or knowledge, you only have that partially in part. They are limited. All right, but then look at verse 10. He says, when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Okay, the partial there refers to spiritual gifts. So they will eventually pass away. When will that happen? He says, when the perfect comes. Now, what does the perfect refer to? Well, a couple of different views here. One view is that the perfect refers to the finalization of the canon of Scripture. Okay, Paul's writing this uh, to the Corinthians here when the New Testament wasn't finalized yet, they had the Old Testament. And so some who believe that this is the correct view will say, well, look at the gifts he references. Paul talks about prophecy and tongues and knowledge. Those are revelatory gifts. And so when the perfect comes, this refers to when the revealed word of God is complete, when it's done, when when we have it uh, finalized. And so when it's final, we don't need those revelatory gifts anymore. Okay, that's one particular view. The second particular view uh, about how to view the perfect, and this is connected to to, uh, the first view, is that this refers to the apostolic age. This refers to the the early church, that as the gospel was being spread to regions or areas of the world, these gifts, these sign gifts were used to kind of validate the power of God uh, in that particular area. And so as, uh, you know, the apostolic age was ending, these gifts were slowly dying out and they're no longer normative uh, today for the believer. Now, the third possible view is to view the perfect as when Jesus returns. When we are kind of ushered up into heaven, we're given new perfect bodies and we are seeing God face to face. And when we see God face to face, there's no need for these revelatory gifts of knowledge, tongues, uh, and prophecy, Okay, now I particularly hold to that third view there. I think that's most convincing because uh, the Corinthians would not have known that the perfect refers to the canon of scripture. And, and furthermore, we still need those gifts even after the canon was finalized, even after the apostolic age was complete, we still need the gift of knowledge. And depending on how you understand tongues and prophecy, we still need those in uh, part, which we'll talk about next week in chapter 14. Okay? But no matter your particular view on what the perfect means, I think the point remains that love must be primary, must be superior over spiritual gifts as the measure for how we're doing spiritually, because spiritual gifts are partial and they are temporary compared to love being eternal and complete, Okay, That's Paul's main point in this passage. Now, what he does in verses 11 and 12 is he uses two different illustrations to hammer this point home. Look at verse 11. He uses the illustration of a child compared to an adult. And his point is obvious, that an adult does not continue to think and talk and act like a child, Okay, an adult puts away childish behavior. You don't see very often adults running around wearing diapers or talking in baby talk. However, Paul's primary point here is not that he's contrasting mature behavior with immature behavior, he's not comparing a babbling infant with a sophisticated adult as if speaking in tongues and the gift of knowledge and prophecy are for the immature believer. Remember, his main point that he's stressing is that love lasts forever in contrast to gifts. Okay, so Paul's primary point here is that there is an age and a time in which certain behaviors and certain activities are appropriate compared to other time periods, other ages when certain behaviors are not uh, appropriate. Let me illustrate this, uh, this illustration with an illustration. I know we're getting kind of deep here, but this will maybe help uh, clear things up. My, my youngest child, he's, he's one and a half years old, almost one and a half. His name's Milo. And uh, he's in this stage right now where he walks around and plays with kitchen utensils, and small household appliances. I don't know why. Like our other two did not do this, but he's walking around with a spatula from time to time. He's walking around with like compartments to our vacuum cleaner. And and he walks up to us and he's got this thing in hand or he wants to go on a walk and he brings it with him. And we always laugh at it. Like we think it's hilarious. We think it's cute. But if Milo continued to do that at age 10, 20, 30, like, we need to have a conversation, right? Maybe you guys need to have a conversation with me and Lindsay about how we're parenting, right? That, that would be inappropriate, right? There are certain behaviors and activities for children that are cute and appropriate, but at different ages, different time periods, it's no longer appropriate. That is Paul's point related to spiritual gifts. They are appropriate for this present life in the church now, but in the future, they will no longer be Appropriate. So Paul says we, need, we will need to put childish behavior away when we see God face to face. All right, now notice verse 12 here. He's, he shifts metaphors from the, the child illustration metaphor to that of a mirror, and he argues for really the same point. But I want to point out something about verse 12 here. He begins verse 12 uh, with the ESV that translates it for now. Other translations has for at the present time, okay, in comparison to a different time, the time in the future. Again, Paul is comparing two different time periods, two different modes of existence, not immature behavior with mature behavior, okay? But notice this metaphor with the mirror, Okay, Paul's point is that right now, we do not have the absolutely perfect view of God. We don't see him face to face. Okay, we know God in parts. Now at the same time though, our knowledge of God, it's real, it's true and it's good, but it's indirect. It's like seeing someone in a mirror. Paul uses this word, we see him dimly or it's blurry a little bit, it's hazy. Okay, I think it's important to know that in Corinth at this time, they were known really throughout the world for their mirror manufacturing. Okay, they were top of the line mirrors here in Corinth. So Paul is using this to illustrate this point. They would have known exactly what he meant. But what's interesting is that uh, in Corinth, they wouldn't use glass to make mirrors. And so it wasn't crystal clear. They would use polished metal. So Paul's point here is twofold. He's emphasizing both the quality by which we see and look into the mirror, but also the indirect nature of looking at somebody in the mirror when it comes to our knowledge of God. Okay, so when you look into the mirror, you're, you're not looking at someone face to face. You're seeing uh, kind of the, the reflection of who they are. You miss some of the fine details. It's not fully complete. It's not a distorted image. It's just not fully complete. It's indirect, Okay, so our present view of God, as, as great as it is through the scriptures and through the spirit, it's gonna get a lot better. Like in the future, when we see him face to face, we will see him and we will have a knowledge of him, a view of him that's not tainted by sin. Maybe to use a more applicable metaphor for us today, it is the difference between seeing somebody in a picture or a photograph compared to seeing them face to face, right? Huge difference, Uh, between the two. That's Paul's point here. Now, after he uses these two illustrations, Paul drops a powerful, powerful statement. Look at the end of verse 12. Paul says, now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. What a beautiful statement by Paul. Paul is saying that it is far more important to be known by God than our, fa- than our small, limited knowledge of God. God knows you fully. God knows you intimately. God knows you directly. Or in Paul's words, God, God knows you face to face. And God's knowledge of all things, it is eternal, it is limitless, And so applying that to you today, there is nothing that God does not know about your life. Think about that. Think about the intimacy of that reality being known by God. The psalmist here in Psalm 139 can't get over this truth. Let me read a couple of verses here. It says, oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, the God of the universe knows you, like really knows you. Doesn't just know like the projected image by which you want to be known. He knows the real you. And it's not like a, a general knowledge or a general view of you as if like, oh yeah, Johnny Smith lives in Indiana, I know that. Or, or Susie Smith lives in California, I know that. God's knowledge of you is incredibly intimate. He knows you better than you know yourself. Like God knows that that burden that is weighing so heavily upon your heart and he knows it better than you know it. He understands it better than you understand it. God knows those anxious thoughts that have been keeping you up at night that make it hard for you to sleep. God knows those anxious thoughts. God knows the fear that's been swirling around in your heart and in your mind that that, that sometimes paralyzes you, where where you feel maybe ashamed to even share that fear out loud. God knows that about you. God knows the confusion that's in your mind, maybe about a, a decision that you need to make about something in the future. God knows it. God knows your struggles. God knows your doubts and maybe what's most uncomfortable this morning, because all those things are encouraging, God knows all of your sin in your life. Like he knows even the secret sin that's in your life. Like the sin that you think no one else knows about, therefore I'm, I'm fine and I'm good. No, no, God knows that sin as well. Like if you think that just because the person that you gossip about doesn't find out that you're in the clear, you're wrong. Like if you think that you can just simply click on that erase button on your internet browser and you're fine, you're wrong. If you think that those sinful thoughts and those sinful desires, those sinful plans those schemes in, in your life and no one else knows about, it, so it's fine. I'm not hurting anybody. Look, you're wrong. God knows everything about your life, everything that you've done and everything that you're going to do. And the reality is, that is a terrifying thought. And for some of us this morning, that needs to be a terrifying thought because there are some of us here today where you have not trusted in Jesus Christ. You have not put your faith in Jesus. So all of that sin has not been paid for. It has not been forgiven by God. And the reality is, and and you might be a, a person who comes to church every week. You might be a religious person. You might even call yourself a Christian, but deep down what you're trusting in for your sins to be forgiven is you and not Jesus. And the bad news this morning is that you will have to give an account before a righteous God, a righteous judge for all of those sins that you have done. And if you are not forgiven by God by trusting in Jesus, the consequences are eternity apart from God in hell. That is the bad news. That is the horrific News, And I say that, and I'm not saying that flippantly, but I want you to know something. I want you to know there, there's actually good news. There is fantastic good news. In fact, this is why we love the gospel so much, because the gospel means good news. And the gospel that I want to declare to you today, that I want to shout from the mountaintop, is that there is grace available Somebody say amen to that. There is grace available, meaning it is not too late. There, there is a type of, of forgiveness that has been made available to you and to me because of Jesus, whereby you can be fully known by God, all of your secrets, all of your sin, all of your struggles, and yet accepted and loved because of Jesus. And the way that that's possible is by bending your knee and declaring that Jesus is King and Lord and putting your faith in him to forgive you of your sins. And look, the reality is, is that this truth here that you're fully known by God, for some of us, that's not a terrifying thought. That is a comforting thought. Because Yes, your sins are known, but your sins are paid for. Your sins are forgiven because you have trusted in Jesus. So, this verse is like a warm blanket to your soul. That this verse is is screaming to you you're known, you're accepted, you're not alone. That the God of the universe is your refuge, is a fortress for you, is a strong tower, is a shield, is your strength because of your weary, fearful, anxious soul, you can find that hiding place in the God of the universe because you are fully known and deeply loved. And look, isn't that what we really want? Like deep down, isn't that what our hearts desire to be fully known and deeply loved? When you really think about it, I mean, if God only loved us, because he only knew the best parts of our lives or the best version of ourselves or us on our best days? Is that really love? No. God fully knows you, warts and all, sin and all, struggles and all, and yet accepts you and loves you because of Jesus. That is true love, and that is what we have in God. I love the way Tim Keller puts it. He says that to be loved but not known is comforting, but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear, but to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. What a beautiful, beautiful phrase. And yet on verse 12, the other side of the coin is something even more encouraging. It's not just that God knows us in full, but there's coming a day in which we will know God in a way that is not tainted by sin. Charles Spurgeon describes it this way. He says, dear friends, the atmosphere of heaven is so much clearer than this that I do not wonder we can see better there. Here, there is the smoke of daily care, the constant dust of toil, the mist of trouble perpetually rising. We cannot be expected to see much in such a smoky atmosphere as this. But when we shall pass beyond, we shall find no clouds ever gather around the sun to hide his everlasting brightness. That's coming. That's for us in Christ. That's for us in the future. Uh, One commentator wrote beautifully about uh, this verse. He says, in this world, we only touch the hem of the garment in regard to understanding the mind of God. At the consummation, our fragmentary knowledge will be replaced. Our notions, illusions, and misconceptions about ourselves, the world, and God will be dispelled and clarified. Man, does that excite you? Man, that, that like gets my blood going as far as excitement level, that I'm going to know God as I ought. I can't wait for that day to see him face to face and to fully know God. Well, we reach the end of this chapter, last verse here, verse 13. Paul finally gives us the true mark of maturity. Beautiful, well-known verse. He says, so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. As Paul closes this wonderful chapter, Paul is highlighting the most famous triad of Christian maturity, faith, hope, and love. These three elements are at the heart of, of what it means to be a spirit-filled, spirit, uh, spiritually mature Christian. And what's amazing about this is that Paul uses this all over his writings. He uses this, for example, in 1 Thessalonians 1, he says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. We, we see this everywhere, Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, Colossians 1, Hebrews 10, 1 Peter 1. And Paul uses this so frequently because faith, hope, and love is a really good summary of the Christian life, the Christian experience, that we put our faith in God through Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, and we trust in God by faith, in his promises, and in his character. But we also hope in God for the future that's been guaranteed by Jesus, and then we love God, we love others as really the summary for all of the commands in Scripture. But why does Paul bring up the triad here, and why now? Like we understand love, this is the love chapter, but why faith and why hope? Well, even though these are a great summary of the Christian life, love is the greatest, Paul says, because love is the only one that will last forever forever. There's coming a day in which faith will become sight. Hope will, be, will end in fulfillment. But because God is love, love will continue on and on. God is not faith. God is not hope. That's not, those aren't things that God does. But God is love. God will love forever. Therefore, love will not fail or fall or falter. Therefore, love is something that we must prioritize. That's why he brings up these three elements of the Christian life that above all spiritual gifts, above all Christian virtue, above anything else in this world, love must be the primary metric for determining our spiritual maturity level. One uh, New Testament scholar described uh, this verse this way. He said that the point of this passage is that the church must be working in the present on the things that will last into God's future. Faith, hope, and love will do this. Prophecy, tongues, and knowledge so highly prized in Corinth will not. They are merely signposts to the future. When you arrive, you will no longer need signposts. Love, however, is not just a signpost. It is a foretaste of the ultimate reality. Love is not merely the Christian duty. It is the Christian destiny. And so looking at how you are doing spiritually, next time you're asked that question, think through that question, through the filter of 1 Corinthians 13, how well am I loving others? Now, before we close today, I wanna kind of land the plane of this chapter by looking at a couple of points of application, okay? I'm tempted, and I don't think this would be helpful just to kind of close it up and say, okay, go love people well, amen right? Like that, that's not exactly helpful. And so uh, thinking through how to be best helpful to you and to me, I want to close by offering three points of application that really, I think, uh, kind of attacks this idea of loving others from different angles. Okay, here's, here's the first point of application in thinking about this chapter, is to be aware of other metrics that want to become our primary metric in determining our spiritual maturity level, okay? I think this is a big one. And it's not like these other Christian metrics are bad in and of themselves. They just shouldn't be primary, okay? And I think this happens far more than we realize. I gave some, uh, some examples in the beginning of the sermon, but let me offer one that I think has become very popular over the last couple of years in particular, I think one of the ways that we have almost used as a primary metric for determining how we're doing spiritually is what I will describe as a type of of separatism that is expressed in a cancel culture within our Christian subculture, okay? And what I mean by that is that, and I hear this all the time, is that sometimes we think about man, how am I doing spiritually? Or where's this person at spiritually? And one of the first places we go is usually, well, who have they canceled, right? Who have they separated themselves out from? Who have they condemned? And is their list the same as mine, right? Are their issues the same as mine? And on one hand, hear me clearly this morning, that's not necessarily a bad thing. To, to kind of remove ourselves from things of this world. We surely need to do that. We need to be in this world, but not of this world. There are things we must avoid. Truth, or love, rejoices with the truth. It does not compromise the truth. Are you hearing me this morning? We, we do not compromise truth. We do not suppress the truth. We stand upon the truth. My concern, though is when your life, my life, becomes more known for what you're against than what you are for. My concern is when we say, I'm against abortion and we need to be 110%. But are you known for tangibly loving, struggling birth moms, struggling birth fathers who typically are young and in a very difficult situation in life. Besides how you vote every four years, tangibly, what ways are you loving them instead of just being against abortion, which we need to be? Or you might be against the public school system right now. I personally am not, but you might be. And that's a decision that each family needs to make each year depending on their child. My question is, is in what ways are you tangibly known for loving those teachers and those in administration who are going through an incredibly stressful time right now, letting your light shine rather than just kind of hiding in a Christian bubble? What are you known for? What are you known against? Let me give you another one. You might be against critical race theory, and I hope that you are. It's a dangerous worldly ideology. If you don't know what that is, just tune me out for a second. Yes, be against that, but also be known for loving all people around you. We can do both, right, church? We need to do both because love doesn't just cancel. Love actively pursues. Love actively looks for ways to display goodness and kindness to people around us. Jesus did not cancel us. Amen? Jesus actively went to the cross and died for us, put love on display. So, hear me, yes, be against those things, but be known for what you are for in actively loving others around you. And be careful, beware of, of what other things in your life might take that place of determining how you're doing spiritually and how other Christians are doing spiritually. Secondly, I think another application point is that spiritual growth should be progressive, okay? And specifically, we we need to be using verses four through seven here in evaluating how we're doing spiritually. Again, I can't stress this enough. Like this passage needs to be the rubric that we use for that we keep coming back to and thinking, man, how am I growing? How am I doing spiritually? Go to verses four through seven. Look to see how you're loving others. It's so specific. It's so convicting, And so these verses, maybe some of us just need to memorize. Uh, Some of us need to ask our accountability partners or people in our small group, hey, ask me about these verses regularly. Like, again, this is not just some cute poetry by Paul. This is to be kind of a, a punch in the gut spiritually to make us be more loving people. And I talked last week, yeah, the primary way we do that is by being filled with God's love for us, yes. But if you're looking at this list and you're not growing more progressively into a more loving person, more consistently loving person, then you probably need to be asking yourself some hard questions as to why. Why is that the case, okay? And then finally, I think the third application point I wanna encourage you with is that you simply cannot give to others what you have not first received from God. That you have no shot at living out this passage, this beautiful passage, unless your heart has been captured by God's love for you. We cannot give to others what we have not first received from God, and yet some of us are still trying. Some of us are still trying to live out verses four through seven, and you might be able to do that for a day, for a few weeks, for a few months, but you will come to a point where you are on empty, right? And so what do you do? What do you do with your emptiness? <laughs> what do you do with your lack of patience, lack of kindness, with your envy? With where do you go, right? We, we all reach that point. I, I reached that point, reached it this week. I was like, man, I'm on empty right now. Like what, what's going on here? Let me encourage you something Lord's been encouraging me with you come to that point where you're on empty and it comes for us all. Do not run to the things that you need to do for God or perform for God. Run to the God who in love has loved you unconditionally and displayed it time and time again. In love, God has displayed his patience to you. In love, God has been kind to you. In love, God will never fail you. Over and over and over again, you go down that list, flood your heart with God's love for you. And the beauty of the gospel, (laughs) the reason why we love the gospel so much is because the gospel reminds us that he is not, God's not scared of your lack of love. He's not frustrated with your lack of love. You you can't shoo him away at your failure to do this. We, We bring all of ourselves before God, all of our ugly parts, and we say, God, fill me. Fill my emptiness with your unconditional love that you displayed on the cross, that you didn't run from my failure, you took it head on and died for me, that I might become a better lover of others. It is God's love that ultimately killed sin and death on the cross. Let's pray together. God, we praise you and we do thank you for who you are. God, there's so many things that that we just cannot get to the bottom of. We think about all that you are, the way that the Bible describes you and defines you. And Lord, we just scratch the surface. And and this idea that you are love is one of those things. God, we, we can't even, we can't, comprehend your love for us. God, we, we could almost only think about it in terms of our own love and, and our minds just explode. God, your love is, is without condition. You love us, not because we're performing well for you, but because this is who you are. This is your character. You, you love us despite us. And God, we thank you for that. We praise you. We do not deserve it. So God, I pray time and time again, would you wow us with your love. God, protect us from becoming callous to this truth. Protect us from pushing this to secondary things in the Christian life. But God, help us to be filled with your love for us that we might best live this passage out. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.